As we turn our attention to Matthew 6, it's important I remind you of two things. First, we are in the middle of an incredible dissertation that Jesus gave his disciples on a hillside in Galilee called the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, while the Bible documents this amazing sermon over the course of three chapters, I need to remind you, and this might seem very elementary, but go with me, there were no original chapter and verse breaks in the text. Now the reason that this simple detail is important really centers on the reality that the subject matter that Jesus is going to now transition into in chapter 6 intends to build off of a fundamental idea that he has spent the majority of chapter 5 establishing. Again, you're reading right through it, no interruptions, no chapter, no verse breaks. This is in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is giving. Now while the religious establishment, the the, the Jewish people, they come to see the religious establishment, the leaders, as kind of being the standard bearer for righteousness, for right living. Jesus closes chapter 5, raising the bar much, much higher. They thought the religious leaders were it. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what the standard is. In verse 48, again, closing the chapter, no chapter, but he declares, you shall be perfect. Oh, you think the religious establishment is the standard you have to live up to? No, I'm going to point to perfection. You shall be perfect, and if you need an example, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it is critical to your understanding of this section of Scripture that since nothing shy of perfection is God's requirement for righteousness, because that's the case, Your performance, your best efforts, your most sincere efforts, attempts, fall so woefully short of perfection that in the end they're kind of pointless. You see, in and of yourself, the truth is that you cannot live up to the lofty moral standard that Jesus is establishing in this sermon. Are you perfect? No. Well, now you've fallen short of the glory of God. Your perfection is an impossibility. Now, as I noted in our last study, and it'll it'll be even more important regarding the subject matter that we're going to be looking at this morning, but as Christians, there will be, as you're going through the Sermon on the Mount, a natural compulsion to take the moral ideal that Jesus is presenting in the discourse, examine yourself accordingly, and in the areas that you find you're lacking, scheme out a way that you can do better. That is the natural compulsion as you're working your way through the Sermon on the Mount. Don't do that. Don't do that. Not only is such an approach not Jesus' intention, but tragically that approach only leads to needless condemnation, guilt. And worse still, it'll also lead to legalistic remedies, which are not good. Never forget, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was not giving his disciples a list of things that he wanted them to do, but was providing a description of the kind of people he was going to be making them into. Please don't misunderstand that if you consider yourself a Christian, you should genuinely, sincerely want to be the type of disciple that Jesus is describing in the sermon. And yet, the most pressing and relevant question to think about 
is exactly how do you become this type of person? I want to be this type of disciple, but how does that happen? To this critical question, the Bible is crystal clear across multiple passages that while it's true you cannot better yourself, you can be made better. The very God who spoke all things into existence out of nothing is more than able to transform you into the person you're not. You see, the ideals established in this sermon, they can be realized in your life, but only as they manifest naturally through a working of Jesus by His Holy Spirit in you. As such, when you come across a moral instruction in the Sermon on the Mount that you're failing to live up to, or maybe a part of this righteous description you currently don't see manifesting in your life, or a component of the ethic that you presently aren't emulating, or an element of the ideal that you may be lacking in, resist, my friend, the compulsion to feel condemned, or to do anything other than coming to Jesus, acknowledging this area where you're falling short in order to ask that He would specifically work in you, that through His Spirit, He would transform you, that he would take that part and work it inside. Verse 1, chapter 6. Jesus. He says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. In the original Greek language, these two words translated charitable deeds. It's actually one word that's best translated as alms or giving. Though in a very broad sense, the word can speak to one's good works. In this case, Jesus is using the word to describe the practical act of a person demonstrating pity or mercy towards those that are less fortunate around them through charity. Now the first observation that must be acknowledged is the obvious assumption made by Jesus, that his disciples were actually going to be charitable people. Like, I hope you know that generosity isn't optional for a child of God. Jesus is assuming, as a disciple, you're going to be char char charitable, that you're going to demonstrate charity. He's going to explain how you should do it, but the assumption is that you will. You see, a person that's been blessed by God will always respond, if they really understand the totality of that blessing, they will always respond by, in turn, blessing others. All of these spiritual truths flow downhill. I love those around me. Why? Because Jesus first loved me, and it's the love that I've received from God that I can't help but demonstrate to other people. How do I forgive other people? It's the totality of my understanding that I've been forgiven by God. God forgives me. It flows downhill so that I have to forgive others. Same thing with with charity, with generosity. God has given me an abundance. And it's in the, the totality of that, it's in the, the, the understanding of all of that, that I can't help but then want to be a conduit by which God can now bless other people around me. In his first letter to his protege, Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19, that he should command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Now, right there, I know that might turn some of you off. You think, well, I'm not rich. Well, you are. 
and the context of just the world right now, you're in the upper 1% of, of the globe. Like, even if you're just on government assistance in America, you're richer than the majority of the people in the world. I mean, we are a very affluent place. So you are the rich. So let's get that out of the way. So command those who are rich in this present age, that's you and me, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. So the first observation from verse 1 is the assumption that Jesus makes right off the, the cuff that his people will be generous. The second observation that you can't help escape is kind of a backhanded acknowledgement made by Jesus that being generous on earth will actually yield a real reward from your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says. It's interesting that the word that we have used here translated reward it refers literally to the wages that are paid for one's work. Like the word literally spoke of a fruit that naturally uh, results from a person's toil, their labor. Like understand, I know this is simple, but don't miss it. You cannot expect heavenly rewards apart from earthly charity. Beyond this, the word that's used, it also implies a measure of proportionality. You see, Jesus is affirming not just the existence of rewards in heaven, but that the rewards we receive from our Father in heaven will be proportional to the measure of our generosity. Like Logically, we can surmise that a, a greater gift, greater demonstrations of generosity, will then in turn yield greater rewards. It's what the word reward means. There's this measure of proportionality. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus would speak with, with even greater clarity to this point. He would tell his disciples, he'd say, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul builds on this particular idea. He writes, He who sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. And in the original language, it's a hilarious giver. Someone that laughs as they're giving. Like, this is awesome. For God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Again, I don't want to hammer home a point, but let me share just a couple Proverbs related to what Jesus is discussing. Proverbs chapter 11, there is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is what is right, and it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Proverbs 19, verse 17, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Now, with these things in mind, it's clear the focus of this particular exhortation of Jesus towards his disciples isn't focused on our generosity, 
or even the rewards that we'll receive, both of which are assumed. They're a given. But what Jesus is addressing is rather the way in which our generosity should manifest to others, as well as how that, the way, ultimately affects the reward that we'll receive from God. So Jesus is cautioned here. It's straightforward. Take heed. So pay attention. Be attentive. That your acts of generosity, Jesus, has not be done before men to be seen by them. Why? Because, he says, if they are, it will eliminate the reward you would have been given by your Father in heaven. Jesus continues, verse 2, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, Basically, you can take this one to the bank. They have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, and in the context, Jesus is contrasting his disciples with these hypocrites. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that's comical. I mean, it's impossible to, to keep you know, what's happening with one hand hidden from the other. Jesus is employing some comedy to kind of illustrate a point. The point being that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now in the end, with regard to generosity, Jesus is saying the way a person gives, whether it's in public or private, reveals the true motivation behind the giver, which then determines the appropriate reward. The way a gift is made reveals motive, which determines reward. Very simple. If the motivation behind a person's generosity is to receive public attention and fanfare, Jesus says the notoriety they receive will be their due recompense. You got what you wanted. However, if a gift, Jesus says, is made in secret and thus is done with a very pure motive, Jesus is promising that that gift won't go unrewarded. Why? Because your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. God knows, even if no one else is aware. Now, if we could be honest, while charity and altruism are not limited to being exclusively an expression of the Christian faith, like even as you look around our society, people that are godless still demonstrate acts of kindness and charity. That being said, anonymous generosity is kind of a unique thing. You see, even the, the sinful flesh can prove generous because the act of generosity will feed its ego, won't it? Like We love to give. We love when people see our benevolence. We enjoy the good feeling. We relish the attention. Self loves the obvious recognition. But in contrast, giving in secret, it's much more difficult because it affords the flesh, and therefore the ego, no tangible reward. It cuts the flesh out of the process. Instead of the immediate payoff of appreciation, a gift made in secret must patiently wait to be indemnified. Instead of the guaranteed glory of men, a private expression of kindness necessitates faith that God actually sees. In place of a temporary reward, charity undisclosed places a higher value on its eternal dividend. 
ultimately, Jesus is pointing out the way we give. And therefore, the motive behind the charitable act itself ultimately reveals not just the essence of, of the reward, but it reveals the true heart of the person giving, of the individual. You should consider, are you giving for the praise of men? Or do you give as a way to express your thanks to all that God has given? Again, Jesus is assuming you're generous anyway. He's assuming that you're giving. He's now asking, well, well, why are you giving? And so you should look at how. When being charitable, the question to always consider is who is the intended audience? Is it men? Or is it God? Now regarding the person whose gift comes with a public spectacle, the sounding of trumpets and whatnot, Jesus refers to these people. He uses an interesting word. He calls them the hypocrites. Now, if you're familiar with the Greek language at all, you probably already understand that this word hypocrite in the Greek, it's used to describe very specifically a stage actor, a person who dons a mask in order to play a part or fill a particular role. In effect, a, a hypocrite masquerades around pretending to be someone that they're not, someone they weren't. Regarding the New Testament, it's interesting that this word hypocrite, it's used 18 times in the New Testament. What's amazing, though, is that 15 of the 18 times are in Matthew's Gospel. It's also worth noting that when Matthew mentions hypocrites in his Gospel, when he uses this word, every single instance, he's using it to describe a very particular group of people. The religious leaders, the religious establishment, the do-gooders. Now, if you remember back to Matthew and a bit of his bio, Matthew, also known as Levi, grew up in the priestly class. Like, he grew up surrounded by this religious culture. He grew up in the midst of it. And he uses the word hypocrite more than any other author to describe that group of people. Why? Because he knew them. He grew up in their midst. In fact, you could argue that it was because of their blatant hypocrisy that he not just rejected them, he went out and decided to be a tax collector. Well, it's true that a hypocrite is a person pretending to be someone they aren't. Understand that the concept of a hypocrite has much, much deeper connotations. In fact, the way that the secular world throws around the word hypocrite, mainly when they direct it at Christians, isn't actually correctly used. It's not, not really true. You see, if you possess a genuine moral standard, you have beliefs about how to live, what behavior's right, what behavior's wrong. You have an ethic and you fail to live up to that ethic, that doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you a failure. You see, in contrast, a hypocrite, a hypocrite is an individual who is intentionally pretending to have a moral standard in public when they have an entirely different one in private. It's nuanced, but it's, it's a profound difference. 
A hypocrite is a person who is knowingly crafting a misleading persona. They've created an outward image of themselves that doesn't square with the reality of who they are. And they know it. They know the image they're projecting is but a mirage. Within the context of generosity, and the fact that this word hypocrite is used by Matthew to describe the religious establishment, Jesus is telling his disciples an easy tell when it comes to identifying a a fake religious person. If you really want to know who's, who's a hypocrite, who's faking this thing, who's faking this righteousness, who really, who's, who's got this persona that doesn't square, if you, if you want to know, here's an easy tell, is what Jesus is saying, just observe the way they give. It'll tell you a lot about them. He'll, he'll later point to the way that a person prays as being equally telling. Again, Jesus here is affirming the way in which a person expresses their generosity will always reveal true motivations, which in turn unmasks their real character or lack thereof. In that day, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would give to the poor. They would give. And they would make a public spectacle out of it. And they would do this to reinforce an image they were projecting of righteousness they knew they didn't actually have. They were deliberately misleading the multitudes. And Jesus is giving the multitudes a real easy way to see right through it all. It was, as you would say, an illusion, Michael. (laughs) Now getting back to the secret way, the contrast, the secret way, in which you and I are to be charitable. You know, unlike the hypocrite. When a gift is made in secret, thereby eliminating the, the craving of the flesh, the ego for recognition, it's much easier to know that the act is manifesting from the correct place. And it will probably be very difficult to do that. But it's revealing of the heart. Yeah, it's one of the main reasons that we don't pass a plate. Aside from just the the practicalities of it. We don't pass a plate here at Calvary 316 because we want to remove the, the, the public spectacle of it. It's why we have an offering box if you want to drop off a check or, or some cash or an iPad kiosk that's as private as we can make it. It's why we have so many options that you can give digitally without anyone knowing but the person that makes the deposit because you've got to have someone. But, you know, you're doing it in such a way. We had structured, it's why we don't do a pledge or why there's not a giant thermometer for the building fund because You should give, but it should be done in secret. It should be something between you and the Lord, and we should stay out of it. God takes care of his church, but this is about you and him, about responding to his grace and his goodness. In the Greek, the word charitable deeds, it's it's a very interesting word. In fact, it derives itself from a very clear root. The root is mercy. You know, in the end, you can always tell when a person has truly experienced 
the mercy of God. They're merciful to others. Ultimately, in the context of all that God has given, it's only natural that our response be charity. Not for the attention of men, not for the temporal reward, the temporary reward, but as a response to the avalanche of goodness we receive and get from the Lord. Verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, take it to the bank. They have their reward. But you, again the contrast here, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Again, Jesus making the same assumptions. His disciples would pray. He's more explaining how you should pray. He says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. So don't, don't pray with kind of an automated or traditionalized you know, mantra. You know the prayers. Why? Because there's not a heart behind it. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're, they're automated. They're just repetition. Jesus says, for they, the hypocrites, think that they will be heard by their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Now, before we get to this very famous section of the Sermon on the Mount that's traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer, let me begin by quickly establishing a few broader points about prayer. First and foremost, while the Scriptures are the primary way in which God speaks to man, that's why we call it the Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture, Prayer is the main mechanism by which human beings communicate to God. So we have God's Word. He's communicating to us. Prayer is us communicating with Him. Very simple. According to the Bible, in addition to being the apparatus by which we make known our requests to the Lord, Philippians 4, verse 6, it is through prayer that we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, make intercession for other people, James 5, 15, Thank God for his provisions, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. It's through prayer that we praise God for who he is and for what he's done, Hebrews 13, 15. It's kind of an odd thing to consider in our world, but worship, what we did earlier, is a subcategory of prayer. It's us communicating with God. Secondly, because our communication to God is fundamentally spiritual in nature, you know, the Bible does not mandate any specific physical posture or uniform to prayer like to this point you'll find throughout the bible examples of people standing while they're praying nehemiah 9 5 kneeling ezra 9 5 sitting i like that one first chronicles 17 bowing down you want to do that exodus 34 8 even praying with lifted hands first timothy 2 8 in fact, and this will probably come as a shock to any of the traditionalists among us, but you will not find any passage at all anywhere in the Bible that mandates you pray with your eyes closed. Fun fact. A additionally, additionally, contrary to whatever your grandmother probably said at Thanksgiving dinner, there is no prohibition in the Bible of wearing a hat while praying. 
You could build the argument that according to Jewish tradition, head coverings were typically warranted. So next time your kid's wearing his ball cap, you tell him to take it off before he prays, realize you're being unbiblical. (laughs) Thirdly, aside from prayer being the central way in which humanity communicates to God, prayer is important because it's also how humanity communes with God. Mother Teresa, a woman who knew God and knew how to pray, she once said the following, she says, prayer is not asking. Prayer is putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition to listen to his voice in the depths of our hearts. This is why Jesus tells us not to pray like the hypocrites. While they project this image of spirituality, closeness with God, the fact that they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, this public spectacle that they may be seen by men, Jesus says it reveals a complete and total misunderstanding of what prayer is really all about in the first place. It's not to be seen by men, it's to communicate and commune with God your Father. Christian, time spent in prayer should provide you, it should enable you, facilitate a personal, intimate experience with the God of the universe. The fact that you pray and you articulate your heart and He cares to listen should drive us to our knees more often, shouldn't it? That God cares enough about you that he wants to hear from you. This is why Jesus, he says, he says, God, when you pray, assuming you will, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your Father. Spend time with your Father who is in the secret place. What intimacy, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, he exhorted the believers, exhorted you and I to pray without ceasing. It's an interesting phrase. It would appear, according to Paul, that prayer is not exactly designed to be a scheduled activity, but instead a continuous lifestyle. Pray always. Pray continuously, without ceasing. It would seem that prayer is more of an attitude than it really is an action. It's something that's constant. Prayer is the mechanism by which you can explore and enjoy this relationship you have with your heavenly father. You know, it's not an accident that the one person in the, in the Bible that prayed more than anyone else, you want to take a guess who it was? It was Jesus. It's how he communicated and stayed in contact with and connected with his father. If prayer was important for Jesus <laughs> to navigate this world, I think it's important for us as well. Again, this is why Jesus, he says, don't don't use the vain repetitions. Get away from that with regards to your prayers. In the end, Jesus, God, he desires this genuine, this real, even raw experience with his people. When it comes to prayer, you know what God wants more than anything else? He wants you to be authentic. He wants you to be real. He wants you to lay your heart bare. Christian, get rid of the notion, like dispel the idea that effectiveness of prayer is somehow determined by its length. It's not true. Or the theology that you use or your eloquence. Like using big words that no one understands or waxing poetic isn't important to God. 
None of those things matter. What he cares about more than anything else is you to be sincere, heartfelt, passionate. You know, building on this idea that scripturally there are only three requirements for prayer. First, you have to approach God according to Psalm 66, verse 18, with a pure heart. Secondly, you have to approach Him through faith in Jesus Christ. John 14. As Christians, it's why we pray in the name of Jesus, because the Bible tells us that it is only through Jesus that we have access to the Father. So we pray in the name of Jesus, under His authority, under the weight of of His name. Thirdly, you pray in accordance. We're to pray in accordance with the will of God. 1 John 5.14 Never forget, it's one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. As Peter was sinking beneath the waves of the sea. So he sees Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee in the midst of this storm. He's like, that's pretty stinking cool. Can I do that, Jesus? You said follow me. I'd like to follow you. Jesus is like, yeah, get get out of the boat. Let's go. And he does. And he's walking on the water. Two people ever walk on the water. Jesus, Peter. you got to give him credit for that. Wasn't too many steps, but he took a few. You try it. But then he gets distracted by the wind and the waves and everything going on around him. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to sink beneath the waves. And he prays. It's passionate. But it's not long. Lord, save me. Did Jesus stand there like, Peter, I needed at least two more paragraphs out of you. Where's the theology? No. Jesus heard the cry of his heart. And he instantly responded, didn't he? Most effective prayer. Regarding the length of prayer in a corporate setting, through my prep this week, I ran across a quote by David Guzik, who was quoting someone else he didn't know, so I'll just give it to him. But he said this, I found it funny. He says, the first three minutes, we pray with you. So when you're praying in a corporate setting, the first three minutes, we're with you. The next three minutes, we pray for you. The last three minutes, we pray against you. I'll add that the worst time for you to have a morning devotional is before I eat lunch. You know, when you go out to eat, and someone feels as though with the, the hot meal right in front of you, that they have to like go on and on and on and on. It's like, I, I just start eating. It's like, this has been blessed a long time ago. You're killing it. With this better understanding of what prayer is, what it seeks to accomplish, let, let me also very quickly add, to round out your understanding before we get to the sermon on uh, the, the, the Lord's Prayer, let me tell you what, what prayer isn't. It'll help some context. Prayer is not the mechanism by which God receives status updates on what's going on in your life. That's not the purpose of prayer. As if the all-seeing God of the universe needs you to keep him posted on the latest happenings. Like when you come before the Lord in prayer and you drop some knowledge and God turns to Jesus and is like, did you know this was going on? And, and Jesus turns to the Holy Spirit and was like, were you aware? We've dropped the ball. Thank you, Zach, for letting us know this was going on. That's not how it works. God knows everything. It's not as though like amen was some cosmic hashtag where the more people you could get lifting up a request, the more likely it was it would trend in heaven and God would take note and do something about it. 
This is why Jesus reminds us, look at it again, he says, he says, your father knows. He already knows the things you have need of before you ask him. I, I'll, I'll throw this out there too, especially in a corporate setting, when you're with like a group of, of fellows or like the band of brothers. Prayer is not the time where you gossip about someone else as well. You ever been in one of those prayer meetings where it's like 90% of that person's prayer was talking about someone and airing their dirty laundry? Like God already knows. Like you just keep that private. Don't do that. I should add that prayer is also not the mechanism by which you attempt to influence God's plan. That's not the purpose, to get God to change his mind about something. Again, as if the all-seeing, all-wise God of the universe, who knew you before the foundations of the world, doesn't already know what's best for you. You know, it's sad, but for many Christians, prayer ends up being relegated to a well-crafted business proposal that's somehow designed to get God to buy into your plan. To this point, author C.S. Lewis makes this observation. He says, in Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. We'll get to that a bit more in a moment. In contrast to the public manner in which the hypocrites prayed, using these empty repetitions, Jesus tells his disciples, let's read through it, verse 9. He says, in this manner, therefore pray. Now, this is known as the Lord's Prayer, a more accurate branding would be the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now before we work our way through the substance of the prayer, Keep in mind that Jesus here, he's giving us a model prayer. He's giving us something that we can pattern our own prayers after, but he's not giving us a prayer to emulate, replicate, or worse, regurgitate. We are again to avoid what? Using vain repetitions as the heathens do, and sadly, this model prayer is used in that regard. Jesus says we, we should begin, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, right from the jump, our prayers should first acknowledge the intended audience, right? Our Father. We should also acknowledge His vantage point. He is a Father and He's in heaven. As well as His nature, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I, I, should, I should note that, and I wouldn't want to build like a, a real dogmatic theology on it, but you don't pray to Jesus. There's not an example of us praying to Jesus in that regard. We pray to our Heavenly Father through Jesus, through the name of Jesus, through His authority. But the audience is the, the Father. You know, much more than just being our God. Our prayers intend to facilitate an interaction with a Heavenly Father. A Father who, while yes, strong, just, is also tender and merciful. I had a great dad. So the idea of a father, God being my father, there's good connotations to it. My father on earth was a good father, is a good father. That's not 
to say that's the same thing for all people. Some of you had really rotten fathers. And so when you think of God as a father, there's this, there's not warm fuzzies. That's why it's not your father on earth. This is a father in heaven. This is the standard your father fell short in. This is something else entirely. You know, instead of being petitioned as created beings to approach a creator, or the Hebrews, when they would stay away in fear of the awesome presence of Almighty God, we are called as children to come to a loving Father, our Father in heaven, with regard to Him. In addition to acknowledging that He sees through this prism of heaven, that He sees us through eternity, we should also pray, hallowed be Your name. This word hallowed, it means more than just holy. It does mean holy, but it means more than that. It means more than just consecration. The, the, the word indicated that His name, His core identity, was free from sin. It was completely perfect. Which tells us we're not just approaching a heavenly Father, but a Father who is without fault in everything that He does. Everything He does is perfect. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, even before we get to our petitions, Jesus wants us to center our perspective. You see, the ultimate answer to whatever problem it is that you face on this earth, its ultimate remedy is the coming kingdom. We're pilgrims passing through. This world is not our home. We need to center ourselves on that reality because it gives context to whatever we're facing. You see, the imminent arrival of His kingdom should pray, place the temporary into context. This is a blip on the radar, man. i got a lot more life ahead. This world's not my home. And it's the fact that a future reality could happen at any moment that should fill our hearts, even in tears and pain, with hope and anticipation. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I noted, your prayer... Prayers should not be focused on seeing your will accomplished in heaven, but God's will accomplished on earth. People have what, what I call kind of the Christina Aguilera theology. They see God as being a genie in a bottle they can rub the right way to get Him to do whatever they want. Give me my wishes. Give me my wants. Give me my desires. That's true that God does want you to cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. But you need to be in your prayers willing to acknowledge to God your will be accomplished. Yes, this is what I would like to see happen, but I know you're perfect. I know you're holy. I know, I know you, you're my Father in heaven who sees all and knows all and you know what's best for me, so I will trust you. Whatever you do will be perfect, and I'll have to accept. Again, I referenced the C.S. Lewis quote. Let me read the passage it's, it's referring to. In Matthew 26, we're given just a perfect example of this, right? We read that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he was very sorrowful. He was deeply distressed. He said, my soul is, is vexed, even to death. Stay here. Watch with me. So Jesus, we're told, goes a little farther. This is right before he's arrested, tried, and executed he went a little farther, he fell on his face, and he prayed, we're told. He prayed. Here's his prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. 
Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's referring to all that's on the horizon. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christian, God is, is so much more interested in providing you the things that you need as opposed to giving you just the things you want. Looking back over my 38 years of life, I have made some very passionate requests of God. Convinced in the moment that I knew what was best. Such a perspective in retrospect was terrible. It's funny that I am more thankful for the times that God did not do what I wanted Him to do than the times He actually did. Like, think about some of your prayers. I'm so glad you didn't listen to me. I was a moron who had no idea. After recentering our hearts on the horizontal, right? God is our Father. His perspective being heaven. His nature being holy. The reality of His coming kingdom. The importance of His will being carried forth over our, our own. Jesus says, now you can get to the vertical. Give us this day our daily bread. In Jesus' day, the daily provision of bread was essential for life. They had mold. Bread couldn't be stored. It had to be made every day, making it an adventure. Practically speaking, Jesus is saying that, that we should and can bring before our Heavenly Father everyday issues, everyday needs. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Within the structure of what Jesus is saying, I do think it's a leap to see him tethering together the two ideas. Instead, I see Jesus encouraging us to petition the forgiveness of God for the dumb things we've done, while also petitioning that he grant us the ability to forgive our debtors, or forgive me and help me forgive others. Jesus wraps up his prayer. He says, do not lead us into temptation. Or more, ac more accurately, do not lead us into a time of testing. But deliver us from the evil one. And he concludes with this salutation. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. You know, the way that Jesus presents this final idea, I kind of find it to be interesting. You notice like these two phrases? Do not lead us into, but deliver us from. You know, though it's entirely appropriate to pray that God would would allow you to enjoy seasons of life free of trial, our prayers should still affirm the reality that trials are inevitable. Do not lead us into, but it's going to happen, so deliver us from. You have no power to endure these things on your own. Trials are inevitable. You're petitioning your Father, Father, when they come, deliver me. Help me through. It's also worth pointing out that the second half of this prayer, and you could, man, we could spend weeks on this particular prayer, which we're not. But this second half, you know, the first dealing horizontal, God, second half dealing with the practical, the vertical. There's three different aspects to life that the second half addresses, doesn't it? Jesus says that, that our prayers should address the things presently in front of you, right? Your daily bread. But your prayer should also address the things that are behind, your past mistakes, as well as the things that are up ahead, future testing and trials. But my point is that when it's all said and done, your heavenly Father is interested in hearing about your past and your present and your future. In closing, 
one scholar I read summed up the purpose of prayer really eloquently, better than I could, so I'll read it. He, write, he writes, prayer changes things, all kinds of things, but the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to Him. Prayer changes us profoundly. Christian, if you pray the way that Jesus is encouraging you to pray, there is one thing that will always naturally result. It's a promise. Through time spent with God in prayer, your life will indeed become more godly. It's been said the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I need you, Father, to align my heart with yours. I need you to help me see what's in front of me the way that you do from the vantage point of heaven. I need you to change the way that I view this situation or this person or this thing I'm dealing with. Change me. Help me see it the way you want me to see it. Aside from that, I love it. A warning given by John Bunyan. He says, prayer will make a man cease from sin. Or, sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. And that's true. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says. In Jesus' name.